All right. We're good. We're doing it. Hi, Catherine. Hey, Tina. How's it going? It's going well. How about you? I'm all right. For those of you just tuning in, this is Reel Me In, a show where we get real about what's going on in our lives, the world around us, and invite others in to talk about it. So, uh, Tina, how was your, your week? My week was blessed by the internet gods. I don't know if you heard about a thing called Fire Festival. Oh, yes, I did. <laughs> F-Y-R-E Festival, for those of you who maybe missed it. Um, there you go. Just Google. Google that. Do yourself a favor. Have a look on the internet. See what memes came of this fiasco. What was fire? Well... As I understand it, it was supposed to be paradise, a little slice of heaven for the wealthy who wanted to hang out with all of the Instagram models. But uh, I don't know. I don't think it went that way. What, what did you read about it, Catherine? I read that basically there was supposed to be this very bougie, very lavish festival on an island in the Bahamas, formerly owned by Pablo Escobar. It was targeted towards the same set of people that go to Coachella that are willing to drop you know, a thousand plus dollars on a ticket. In some cases, the ticket prices were $12,000 and they were sold the experience of a lifetime. And when they got there, there were refugee tents instead of villas. There were pieces of bread and cheese instead of gourmet meals. And there were shark infested waters instead of open crystal clear blue waters where they could frolic with pigs. And of course, all these people that had spent exorbitant amounts of money started freaking out on the organizers and no one understood why this thing fell to pieces and it was very much played out over social media and like the best memes ever came from it fire festivals falling apart was everything that we needed and deserved this year i think i read that on twitter to be fair people in flint michigan still don't have water so the people that were there stranded on this island got a little taste of what it's like for people right here in America every single day. And they were horrified and they're suing over it. So we should direct that same level of outrage to what's happening in our own home. Is there anything exciting that happened in your life this week, Catherine? So many exciting things. I mean, obviously, fire kept me LOLing for like 48 hours straight. But oh my gosh. You side note, Catherine was supposed to go to Fire Festival. Oh, yeah. Actually, we both were, but we were Catherine both. like had bags packed and did not go. Literally, I was supposed to go weekend too, and on Wednesday, I still thought it was happening. I had a free like comp ticket. I would never spend twelve thousand dollars on a ticket. I was like, it's free. Why not? And as I saw it falling apart, I was like, okay, this is definitely not happening. And I'm very glad that I was not one of the people going weekend one. But this past week, Tina, you introduced me to the magic and joy that is Banana Skirt Productions, which is a dance studio where they teach a variety of very high intensity, really fun dances. There's a you know reggae dance hall class, there's a hip hop class. I'm sure there's a bunch of other classes that I haven't even seen. But Tina, how did you even like find these people? They're amazing. So I found Banana Skirt because I was looking for a place where I could learn to dance and have some fun. I was doing a segment for work about different alternative ways to experience fitness and it came highly recommended from a coworker. but when I looked up the company I fell in love with it. It was founded by a woman named Akina Rahman 
And she's somebody who was a choreographer for many people, including Buster Rhymes, Missy Elliott, a little Cool J, Q-Tip. And she ended up having a son and wanted to continue dancing, but also be an amazing mom. And she is. I've met her son. He's wonderful. And she decided to create a dance environment where you could learn choreography and also just have fun. And the ratchet classes started because she missed the club scene and she wanted to get out there and create a space for her and her friends to do that. And basically, like, they turn out all the lights, <laughs> you're given a couple of moves, and you're allowed to just go. <laughs> it was incredible. I don't think anything could have prepared me for how awesome it was. Tina had posted some snaps and, you know, told me that, you know, it was really fun. This woman taught her how to twerk and she felt very free. And I've taken, you know, classes similar to this or that profess to be similar to this before. But I usually come out feeling, you know, really awkward because I'm too focused on trying to do the choreo or the lights are really bright and you feel like very much on display. But you come in, they turn off the lights, they have all these strobes going and you just feel like you're at the club minus the creeps. And it is intense like you know you're jumping you're sweating literally at one point we're on the ground like booty popping from the ground i fully lost myself in the class and it was fantastic thank you so much tina for bringing that into my life thank you for coming i think everyone should be a part of the banana skirt movement it is delightful look them up online oh speaking of our banana skirt experience do you recall what happened afterwards when we were minding our own business at the starbucks trying to eat our dinner yeah so we were on a nice little uh, endorphin high after you know twerking for about an hour and it was towards the end of the night so the baristas there are two female baristas there who are wiping down the counters like starting to kind of wind down for the night there were probably four to five other people in the Starbucks and this man comes in and at first he is I guess kind of creeping on this other woman who went and hid in the bathroom but then he goes up to the barista and he says hey hey you look good hey and the woman is kind of like thanks slash like kind of pushing him off and he's just progressively getting louder and louder he's like hey you're giving me a lot of aggression like i don't take no for an answer i don't take no for an answer i believe his exact words were girl i'm trying to talk yes. to you i won't take no for an answer let me get to know you what is your star sign <laughs> oh my god i forgot about that what is your star sign i'm trying to get to know you what is your star sign and at this point we all have kind of turned around like got my hand on my phone just in case I need to take some photos or call the police. But she had it fully, like this wasn't a new thing for her. Yeah, it was actually really sad to me to see how well oiled the machinery around this was because it was clear that this has happened before. I think she said afterwards it happens all the time. But the level of aggression and like harassment that was being exhibited towards her just because she was being there was atrocious and so indicative of like our world today where it's just like, hello. I want this from you. I'm not taking no for an answer. I don't care what your needs or desires are. Boom, deal with it. Like, here's a compliment. Now give me what I want. Like, what the heck? But yeah, she threatened to kept threatening to call the police. I think we were kind of waiting to see what was going to happen. Like, if it had, if it was going to escalate anymore, like we would have definitely jumped in and said something. But she had her hand on the phone. The guy eventually, after about five minutes of this, left and went to Dunkin' Donuts to probably terrorize more people there. But it was frustrating to witness. It was gnarly AF. So 
shall we hop into today's topic? Absolutely. Yeah. You want to go ahead and give it an intro? Sure. So today we're talking about an issue that is something that people have struggled with since the beginning of time, but is very pertinent to us today, and that is addiction. Currently, 21.5 million American adults are battling a substance abuse disorder. Almost 8 million adults are battling both a addiction and mental health disorders, so the two kind of tend to go hand in hand. And it's hard to look at the news today without seeing some headline about the rise in opioid use and the rise in addiction amongst what is generally a mostly white middle upper class population that has turned into you know heroin addiction and it's while it's troubling to see that this is on the rise what's also kind of troubling is that there's such a disparity in the way addiction is treated and viewed in this white upper middle class community contrasted with the way and the access that is given or not given to lower income black and marginalized communities and while it was criminalized in the past in lower income communities like the crackademic of the 80s the way the government responded was like hey let's put all these people in jail versus the way people are responding now and the way the government is responding now like oh this is a health crisis like we need to help these <laughs> middle income middle class white people with their struggles and their addictions to opioids it's just night and day i mean i'd like to think that it's because the government and the world that we live in has become more wise to the ways of addiction and that it's not something to be criminalized, but there's definitely, uh, if anything, I think it's indicative of a pervasive uh, disparity in how we treat these communities. But either way, so the, the disparity is frustrating, and that's why we have someone here today to speak a little bit more about the topic of addiction, who's really devoted her life to the cause and that person is Raven Burgos. She is a interventionist with an MSW. For those of you who don't know, that means a Master of Social Work from Hunter College. And she works with high-risk populations struggling with addiction, trauma, and mental health disorders. She's the founder of HelloHappiness.us. Uh, she's also the founder of TakeFido.org, which enables victims of domestic violence to flee their abusers and seek help. And Raven believes that addiction treatment should be available to everyone, regardless of financial situation. She's also a champion of small acts of everyday resistance and feels that you should always swipe people in on the subway, which is an interesting topic, which we'll talk a little bit more about later. So Raven, welcome to Reel Me In. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. So what motivated you to become an interventionist and how has your own experience in recovery influenced your approach to dealing with others? I mean, I, I think that as far as drug and alcohol intervention, you know, it was directly connected to my experience personally as somebody that's in recovery, but also there was a generational connection. I am a, like a fourth generation addict and alcoholic. This has been an issue that was really pervasive in my family and literally crossed continents. My family is originally from Central America and, you know, my great grandfather actually died with 
like 40 years of sobriety in Honduras, where I'm from. So there's always this knowledge and understanding that this was an issue in my family. And I was told from a really young age, you probably should watch out because there might be a chance that this could be something that will affect you one day. And unfortunately, it was. And I initially got into the world of social work via working at homeless shelters for runaway and homeless youth, which was an amazing experience. It was literally life-changing. And from there, I sort of worked my way up to be a case manager, to be a organizer, a director. And I'm a firm believer, especially when you work in social work, that you need to have an exit plan, whether you like it or not, eventually you sort of start to burn out a little bit. So I made a plan and my plan was to start getting more involved in the addiction world and in interventions. And, you know, I firmly believe that I wouldn't be able to do this kind of work if I didn't have a personal connection to addiction and to recovery along with sort of that clinical foundation that I have. So I was definitely influenced by my own personal experience, but also by my desire to just help people in general. I know what it's like to be on the other side of that, and it's devastating, and it's hopeless. And I feel really privileged that I'm able to be the person on the other side that can say, actually, it's not hopeless. You can get through this. This is how we're going to do this. Raven, first of all, thank you for being so brave and sharing your story and you know really using that as a catalyst to help others why is intervening in cases where you have a loved one that's addicted so important i think that's a fantastic question i think that there is a like pervasive belief that if somebody is in need of help that they have to be ready to get help that they have to hit a rock bottom to get help and while you know, that is super rooted in a 12-step philosophy. The reality of it is that somebody really might die before they ever hit a bottom. And they might not really make it to a place where they want to stop using. I mean, as an addict, I can tell you, why would I want to stop using drugs? They work. Like, there's really no reason why I really would have wanted to stop, you know. For me, a lot of circumstances outside of myself were creating a life that was insanely intolerable. But I can tell you that the day before I stopped using, had you asked me if everything was okay, I would have said, yeah, everything's fine. You know, I think it's really important to intervene at some level to really address what's going on with your loved one because one thing that really characterizes any sort of addiction is that the person tends to lie to themselves and say nobody sees what I'm doing nobody knows what I'm doing I'm doing a really great job of keeping this together this is a total secret nobody knows when in reality like we're looking at your snapchat like your life is a mess or we're seeing who you're hanging out with or you're not showing up to important events or you lost all of these jobs or every single one of your romantic relationships is a shit show you know there are all of these signs that really paint a picture of complete and utter unmanageability in the person's life and chances are that the longer that somebody's going to use the more they're going to put themselves in danger you know a lot of people that are addicted aren't actively suicidal but they're definitely passively suicidal in my experience meaning i'm not going to try to kill myself but i'm really i hate myself so 
something happens to me when I'm out there, that's okay with me. And that is a really, really dangerous place to be in. And it's important to gather the people that love a person, not just to say, hey, what are you doing? You know, we're not trying to recriminate everybody, but you gather with the intent of giving them an out to give them an option to say, we will support you. A, we see you. Okay, we see what you're doing. B, we support you and we love you. C, here's the way out. And the person might not always take it the first time. They might not take it at all. But there are people that will. And in my experience as an interventionist, nine times out of 10, people actually take the help that is being offered to them. So at what point do you come in? Are you the one who's there when the family kind of has that initial conversation? Yes. Well, I actually, you know, as an interventionist, interventionist as profession, right? So because you don't actually need an interventionist to have these kinds of conversations with your family members. There's a lot of resources online. There's a lot of ways of having these conversations. It is not what it looks like on the TV show. So like, don't do that. That's like awful. <laughs> That's a really old way of, of talking to somebody. There's no surprise here. So the way that I usually get involved is I usually come in when there is an extreme crisis. You know, I'm really good at triaging. So coming to in a situation where there's a lot of chaos within the family, within the people that care about this person, I usually only get a phone call when somebody is killing themselves, when people are on the verge of dying or losing everything is usually when I get a phone call. So part of the work that I do is actually working with the family to identify the individuals that matter in the addicted person's life. I talk to every one of those people. I coach them. I make assessments to make sure that everybody that's going to be there is actually appropriate. Sometimes if it's a situation where it's a couple... I mean, I, I don't know if you guys have seen like junkies that like stay together for like 20 yeah. years on the street. And I remember when I was single, I was like, I can't cobble together like six months with anybody, but you, you guys are together for great. Fantastic. <laughs> Anywho, it's like my own psychosis right there. So, you know, sometimes the intervention isn't going to work if you just do it with one person. You have to intervene on the couple. So there's so many different scenarios and so many different kinds of things that you have to consider when executing an intervention. So part of what I do is that I take all of this experience, uh, personal, clinical, and I make an assessment and I let the family know, okay, this is the plan. This is how we're going to do this. This is how we're going to approach the situation. This is who's invited. This, and then I have individual conversations with everybody. Then I have a family meeting and then I choose who makes the invitation. I will only do an intervention through the invitational method. There are interventionists out there that will show up to an intervention with a pair of handcuffs what? and they will straight up slap some handcuffs on people and take them to rehab unwillingly. So that's real. That's not what I do. You know, I don't think that you can sort of foster trust and love. Like, that's not trust and love. That's really aggressive. It's just not how I operate. So, you know, the night before, somebody who, you know, we've deemed as the appropriate person will call the addict and say, hey, Johnny... Jill, Josefina, I don't know, whatever. We we love you. We're worried about what's going on. We hired somebody who's a professional that is going to help us because we need help too. And we're going to have a meeting tomorrow at 3 p.m. at grandma's house. And we want you to be there. But we want you to know that this meeting is going to happen whether or not you show up. 
that's the beginning of the end for their addiction hopefully fingers crossed you mentioned the approach of not criminalizing the person and i think that speaks into the broader topic as well of just people are treated so poorly and the ideas around addiction and the stigma around addiction are still so vastly skewed towards people being just bad people and it being a moral issue and you know there's a statistic like 80 percent of people know someone who is struggling with addiction Mm -hmm. and there's a clip of you on your website saying that sometimes you can't wait for a person in your life to be ready for treatment and you have to be you have to proactively go to them I know that this is like how you begin that conversation, but how do you continue it? How do, what do you do next after you have offered that invitation? Like, what do you do? So, you know, usually the families don't think that the person is going to show up. But if I know anything about anybody ever, any human being ever, is that nobody likes the idea of being talked about when you're not there. So sometimes ego is a huge motivator in getting people to show up more than the love of their family. They're like, these motherfuckers will not. They have no idea what's going on. You know what I mean? Like the wheel, the hamster wheel starts turning. Um, So nine times out of ten, people show up I I've yet to have an intervention where somebody has not shown up and you know before this meeting everybody's on the same page we have an idea of what we want the result to be uh you know I don't only do interventions for people that have drug and alcohol issues I also do mental health interventions financial interventions so you know we'll stay on topic so let's say the idea is that the person agrees to go to rehab for 30 to 90 days so You know, I I print out a physical contract. I make the person sign a physical contract. Will it hold up in court? Not at all. It doesn't matter if you're over the age of 18. Unless there's a medical hold on you, a 48-hour one, nobody's bringing you to rehab and making you stay there. But, you know, it's a start. And we meet with the family. And, you know, everybody, you know, does sit in a circle. I usually sit on the ground. I like sitting on the ground. I also really like to set the tone for how the intervention will go. And I, I direct it. I work as a producer of sorts. You know, I pick who goes first. You know, I tap people in and out as necessary. There's people that I hold off till the very end there are people that you know not everybody that's there will get to talk i i want a yes after 10 minutes i usually you know will have people say what what have you seen what do you fear and what do you hope most people will get to speak not everybody will get to speak and then i'll ask the person are are you willing to accept the help that you're being offered today and the hope is that the person will say yes and if they say yes and i'm like fantastic everybody hug and we're gonna go help you pack now for people who can't afford a Raven Burgos to show up at their home and sit on their floor and produce an intervention. How do, what kind of resources are available to these groups of people? So there's a number of websites. I'm not going to recommend anyone in particular on purpose, but there are resources out there. There are books that will teach you and show you how to stage an intervention. Basically there, it's like an intervention guide There's different guides online. You can research them. You can look them up. You can look at what you think will be appropriate for your family. I think it's really, really hard to put on an intervention if you don't have the experience doing it. It helps that I am a neutral person. So one of the things that I would 
have you do is really identify who the most neutral person is in that situation. And also don't be afraid of bringing in the HR department. If this person has a job, chances are your crying isn't the thing that they actually care about. And, you know, I hate to tell that to families sometimes, but I tell them if, if hurting you was an issue, they would have stopped this a long time ago. A lot of people, you have to really look at what motivates people. And if it's their girlfriend or their boyfriend that motivates them, you better have them there, even if you hate them. If it is their job that motivates them, have somebody from HR represent it. They're saying we are willing to support you and help you while you go get addiction treatment, but we will not have you in our office because it's a liability. You know, there's so many people that end up getting help and staying sober ultimately because they were going to lose their jobs you know the thing about addiction and i think this is what hurts families the most is that like your feelings don't really matter they don't care if they hurt your feelings they don't care if they disappoint you you know towards the end of anybody's addiction or if they're sort of embroiled in it there are very few people that will elicit an emotional reaction so you have to think really thoughtfully when you're putting together this group of who really does matter the most and who's going to have the most impact and that person needs to speak first Another just side question, after the intervention, once somebody has agreed to go to rehab, what are some kind of do's and don'ts for supporting them or, you know, things to stay away from through the process? Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that you don't do is engage in the person's addiction of choice. So if it is an addiction issue, so if a person is a compulsive shopper, you do not go out shopping with them. If a person is a drinker or uses any sort of substances, you do not use those substances around them. So one of the things that I have to tell families, and I really do have to tell families, you can't drink with them anymore. You can't go out. Do not drink around them. Not forever, but for the time being, you're trying to model and to set up an environment where they don't feel weird, where they don't feel awkward. Another thing is as a family member or loved one of somebody who has an addiction issue, you have a responsibility to take care of yourself. You have a responsibility to not project because once that person is getting help, they're going to have to keep the focus on themselves. And whether you like it or not, an intervention is not the time where you point fingers at them and read them the riot act and say, look at all of this fucked up shit that you did to me. You need to go get help. Not appropriate. After in early recovery, also not the time to tell them you need to pay and you need to know how this made me feel. And the thing is that your feelings don't matter in this situation. There's, you have somebody that is incredibly sick. You know, if somebody was getting cancer treatment, for example, and they smoked their whole life and they have lung cancer, it wouldn't be appropriate for you to go to the hospital and point fingers at them and say, fuck you, secondhand smoke. And you really have to get your own support whether it's therapy or very free Al-Anon, you know, which is a program. It's also a 12-step program for friends and family of people with addiction issues. There's also other 12-step-based programs, ACOA, which is Adult Child of an Alcoholic. You know, there are programs that are specifically made to sort of teach you the skills that you need to have in order to maintain a relationship with a person that has an issue with addiction. Because otherwise, I promise you that your own emotional and mental health will suffer and you will not help the person that you think you're trying to help. Thank you for all of that. I think that's so pertinent and I feel like we all could benefit from having a little more compassion and pointing less blame at the people going through the addiction. Now, I want to kind of circle back to something we mentioned in the beginning about you being a firm believer that everyday acts of resistance can lead to big social change. And one of those things was 
always swiping people in on the subway. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit more about that. Absolutely. Well, you know, you guys kind of opened this particular talk in talking about how differently addiction was treated within the POC community during the crisis in the 80s versus how it's getting treated now because it's affecting white suburbia. And one of the things that I read recently, you know, people are like, well, why, why all of a sudden white people, why? And study after study, a lot of people will say that their addiction started through prescription drug use, right? They were, you know, they had some sort of injury, they were prescribed drugs, they became addicted, and then they turned to street drugs to supplement their addiction because they couldn't get it, because they couldn't get you know, they're drugs anymore. And one of the things that I know, because I've also read it and because I looked up some of this research, I'm just like, you know, drug opiates, drugs in general still have a devastating impact on POC communities. But like, why is it that somehow seemingly this new wave of opiate addiction has like sort of skipped over entire communities? And you might find this interesting is that, you know, doctors can be racist as fuck. And, you know, traditionally speaking, you know, black and brown bodies in the United States were used for medical purposes. And there is even like the founder of gynecology would like experiment on black women without using anesthesia. So there's this been this undercurrent of like this undercurrent um, of I think there's like a just like a thought that black and brown people do not experience pain the same way that other people do. And therefore, we do not have um, any sort of right to receive pain management. So let's take it back to 2016, 2017, whatever. Um, doctors are just less likely to prescribe opiates and pain, like appropriate pain management stuff to black and brown communities. So they are more than happy to overprescribe them to seemingly weaker more sensitive white people and the result has been the skipping the wave has not affected black and brown communities because of the racism that exists within the medical community so weird blessing in disguise maybe it is but it's also yeah it also means that you know black and brown folks still aren't getting appropriate pain management um however we had our own cute little heroin epidemic in the 70s so we already did that it's 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 this you know (laughs) this racist notion of you can't give black and brown people drugs because they're gonna be because they're gonna become drug addicts Mm -hmm. and you know obviously there's been a lot of you know all of a sudden you know judicial reform is now a bipartisan issue um so that being said you know you mentioned uh everyday forms of resistance so i am a huge advocate for swiping anybody and everybody on the train if i have an unlimited metro card and the reason being is that you know about a quarter of low-income people in new york city cannot afford to get on the train so they cannot afford two dollars and 75 cents to get on the train however if they get caught hopping onto the train they'll they're they can be issued a ticket that will go anywhere from 25 to 40 dollars so you are criminalizing the poor because you're actually giving somebody a ticket for 40 dollars who can't afford two dollars and 75 cents and if they don't show up if they don't pay their ticket they'll get a a bench warrant. And if they get a bench warrant and they don't show up to the bench warrant, that court date, then there is a warrant out. So the next time they hop a train or they get stopped for just being brown on a corner or whatever, you know, things happen with the NYPD. Um, 
they will run that person's name. And if there is a bench warrant, then what they do is that they will stick you in the tombs. And every day that they have you in jail waiting to be processed for a $2.75 fare that wasn't paid, it will cost taxpayers in New York City $500 to just keep them there. What? Yeah. And there are a lot of reasons why people hop the trains. You know, I specifically worked with runaway and homeless youth populations for about six years. And I can't tell you countless, countless times that I had clients get arrested trying to get to job interviews, that I had clients arrested trying to make the curfew at the shelter that they were staying at, that I had clients get arrested because they were just trying to make it onto the A train, which is the longest train line in all of New York, so that they could sleep on the train. That you have people that will get these tickets over and over and over again. And the problem is, is that, you know, a lot of people don't know that New York City actually has transit police and transit court, which is completely different than regular police and regular court. But don't get me wrong. They can both lock you up. They can both give you tickets. That's totally okay. Um, But they actually apply the rules very differently and arbitrarily and you know, it can come down to the cop, like being in the mood or not. So you'll have young people that are stopped multiple times. And if you get stopped for the same thing, like hopping the train, you know, for multiple times, then you are considered, they put you in a different category. So even if, let's say, you have no bench warrant, you haven't been arrested, there's no ticket out there for you, if you hop the train style, I mean, if you hop the train, they can arrest you on the spot immediately for just hopping the turnstile. This is a nonviolent offense. This is considered not a priority, but they will, they will arrest you and put you in jail. So you really don't know where a person is and what kind of situation they're in that puts them in a position to ask you to get swiped on the train. If you have an unlimited Metro card, it's actually not illegal for you to swipe somebody on the train. It's not. As long as your ride has been completed and you know it takes 18 minutes between swipes. So as long as that is done, you actually will not get arrested or get put in jail for swiping somebody on the train. However, the person asking you can because it's considered panhandling and it's considered getting in the way of traffic. And those are like these two guidelines that the New York City like MTA has. Very recently, Cy Vance, who's the district attorney for Brooklyn, put out a recommendation that asked the NYPD to stop giving out tickets for these low-level offenses because they really clog up the justice system, the judicial system, and they also can result into up to 10,000 arrests per year that will result in people actually staying in Rikers Island, which, by the way, costs about $168,000 to have somebody there for a year. Mm-hmm. So it's actually not worth it to like pay the equivalent of an Ivy League education for somebody to be in jail for a year. Guys, just going to drive this home. Swipe people on the train, as they would say in Spanish, no te cuesta nada. It doesn't cost you anything most of the time if you have an unlimited metro card but you really could be saving people's lives by doing it and the audacious thing about that is the other morning on my way to work the transit police were hovering over as they were doing the change in the mta machine or whatever and they were right next to the emergency door which i was you know in the flow of traffic for 
and this tall, beautiful white woman in her red skirt suit pushed me and many people out of the way so that she could enter through the gate, didn't swipe, and the police saw her. Mm -hmm. I saw them see her, and they did nothing. Yeah. Had she looked just a little different in many ways, even if she was still white and wearing rags because she was homeless, boom, citation, boom, arrest. So it's like this disparity in all ways between the way people are treated and the cost that it, I mean, if you want to talk to people about things that maybe they can hear and understand if race doesn't affect you, like it's costing you money as a taxpayer, you know how you're... It's it, usually <laughs> what people care about. <laughs> That's why I always bring up the fact coming. that it's causing you, it's costing you $500 a day for something that's kind of arbitrary and you know I do want to say that as of like late 2016 there there is this recommendation that people no longer will get sort of gone after for these low-level criminal offenses so my hopes is that we we will start moving more and more away from the broken windows policies like the arresting somebody for urination arresting somebody for hopping a train is like if somebody's homeless where they can use the bathroom you can't give them a $50 ticket it makes no sense and all it all that it does is criminalize poverty so i just read an article yesterday democratic left-leaning nonprofits are basically printing money because so many people are donating towards them to them which is absolutely fantastic and people should continue to do so but you know everyday forms of resistance can have a really really huge impact on people's lives so if i can leave you with anything is swipe people on the train for god's sake just swipe people on the train <laughs> You do a lot of great things in the world. I know that you have some creative retreats coming up in the future. What does that mean? And what's next for you in general? Thank you. Well, I own a 27-acre farm um, upstate New York, about an hour and a half away. And we're turning it into an event and wedding venue, but we're also establishing a nonprofit. And hopefully through that nonprofit, we're going to be able to host retreats that are free, raise money to sort of fund said retreats and to do a bunch of other really fun and interesting things. So one of the things that we have coming up right now is in mid-August, we're hosting our first retreat for women of color all women of color, all sorts of women of color who work specifically in grassroots activism and politics just as a recentering retreat. So those are actually going to be happening bi-monthly. And right now there are a couple of other retreats in the works that specifically help young women who are experiencing depression. So there's a there's a couple of really fun things that we really want to be able to offer to people. The hopes for me is that we can create a platform and to really give people opportunities to earn money, to decompress, to relax, because I think that it's just not something that is super accessible. I know that when I was growing up in my own country, I was able to be out sort of like literally in the woods. And when I came to New York, I moved to Bay Ridge. So there was like none of that was happening. And I also just know what a, what a fucking grind it is to live here and how overwhelming it is. Like I have anxiety. You talked about like the fire festival. Like there is nothing that would have turned me off more in this world <laughs> than to like be in any sort of large group with people. I'm like, oh my God, I want to die. Uh, <laughs> so I, it would be really great to afford people just an opportunity to get up there, to decompress, to spend some time alone, to be honest. You know, 
for me, retreats aren't just about like having these scheduled activities, but it's about having the ability to engage and disengage with folks as needed so that you can sort of come into an experience and step out of an experience and feel like you have a choice to do so. And I know that like when I'm riding the train, I don't feel like I have any choice with anything. So, Where can people find you? What are all of your handles and websites and what oh, are the things man. um i so for intervention related stuff it's hello happiness.us my contact information is on there my personal phone number is on there so you feel free to text and reach out so one of the things that i do is that i will take any phone call especially when people are looking for help and i will always coach people and point them in the right direction free of charge let them know what an intervention looks like kind of like what i did today with you guys but i will talk to a person individually and sort of give them my assessment completely for free i want people to know that they can call and they can reach out for help and that there's going to be somebody on the other line to pick up the phone and i guess i have an instagram handle it's at chow raven to play off of a soda stereo album so it's c-h-a-u raven like the bird okay thank you (laughs) thanks raven And yeah, thank you so much for being here today. And as always, you can slide in our DMs with any comments, suggestions, or recommendations of people we should interview in the future. And our handle is at underscore realmein. That's at underscore R-E-A-L-M-E-I-N. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Ciao. Ciao. Hello.